Good evening and welcome to episode six of Tomatly Talks. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. Okay, there you go. I've been playing a lot of tunes the last uh, few nights. Became Mr. DJ. And uh, I love Frank Sinatra. And I had a lot of people saying, hey, Lynn, would you, would you sing? So there it is. Uh, that's my song for tonight. Now everybody can have a good laugh and sit back, and maybe we can talk about some of the things that I wanted you to ask me about. Uh, before I start, I want to make a correction. In episode five, I talked about Harry Maine, whose grandfather was a slave, a cook at Tomotley. Harry's 95, maybe 96 now, and I, I made a mistake. I referred to my meeting, uh, actually meetings with Harry, uh, with his brother and his aunt. Well, boy, I caught that one. Everybody started saying Woods talking about having somebody had to be 120 years old for Harry Maines to be 95 and have his aunt. Well, I made a mistake. I referred to her as his aunt. She is his niece. So now I think I've gotten her back in the right age group. And uh, please forgive me for my mistake. Glad I had a chance to correct it. So I decided in thinking about what I would talk about tonight, I would talk about myself. I usually don't do that, although I try to keep you informed about some of the things that are going on, particularly in the lawfare area uh, that involve me. But I rarely talk about myself. I've given my testimony uh, several times. I'm always honored to be able to do it. Uh, I know I did when I was running for chair of the South Carolina Republican Party. Uh, so I thought I would talk tonight about me, and maybe in the process it might give you some information that might help you. Um, I pray that it does. I was going to focus on questions you wanted to ask me about my life's journey, particularly since August of 2018 when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, because that's been a heck of a journey since then. That was a heck of a journey before that, too, so... I ask people to submit questions, and I would try to answer as many as I could. I've got Stuart Guthrie here, my pastor, my sidekick, and uh, he's going to go through the reply channel, and he's going to select the questions to ask. Uh, I don't pre-screen them, but I did ask Stuart to try to make sure that they were on topic. I know there's a lot of questions that I see on my reply channel uh, asking me certain things about other people and other channels and stuff, and I this is not the night to discuss that if the night ever comes. So it's going to be about me, and hopefully in the process it'll be about you. So, Stuart, we're ready to go? Yeah, we got plenty of questions. Question number one. Question number one comes from Kathy. Kathy says, as you look back, do you see God at work at specific times and instances in your life? And even though you weren't necessarily listening to God at that time, do you feel that he was preparing you for such a time as this? The answer is yes. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but when I accepted Jesus Christ, 
I looked back at my life and I understood it much better. I knew uh, God when I was a teen. I had a tough uh, childhood. My home was one of domestic violence, but that's another story for another day. Uh, And I found my refuge in church as a teen, and I found it in school. And so I was asked at age 14 at Sherlington Baptist Church if I would deliver the Youth Day sermon. That was the Sunday night sermon. I got to pick my uh, scripture, and I got to do my own sermon. wrote it myself. And I remember giving it, and I, I will tell you that, that that night, almost everybody in the church rededicated themselves to God. I picked Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God. We do not fight flesh and blood. Uh, and I look back now, and I know that God was preparing me then for what I would need to know now. Because we are in a spiritual battle every second of every day of our lives. And it's become so obvious that I felt like He was preparing me then. I know that in my law career, uh, I spent 20 years doing medical malpractice, worked in a hospital for two years as I was going through college. I learned a lot about medicine. And I had also worked for a time period as a, uh, in high school as a news writer for the Macon News. I covered high school football games, wrote the articles about them. And then, obviously, I got involved in the Richard Jewell case, and the next thing you know, I'm spending 25 years taking on the media after first taking on the FBI. And then I had two cases where I was involved in major cases of fraud involving false claims acts arising primarily out of Medicare. Uh, One case involved proving fraud that had existed in a major corporation for 20 years and involved uh, directly lawyers, a lot of them. So I look back now and I see the issue before our country in terms of Uh, the bioweapon COVID and the various treatments that are being offered for it. Uh, And I I understand the medicine. I look at uh, what's going on with the deep state and my experience with Richard Jewell. I understand it generally. I've learned a lot more about it in the past year and a half. And then obviously I look at the propaganda, the fake media, and I understand it. Uh, And then I look, obviously, at the election illegality and fraud, and intricate though it may be, I understand it. Now, I've always believed that there are no coincidences. I believe that all my life as a lawyer. And now I understand why, because there are no coincidences. (laughs) So I've always looked for explanations, I've always tried to take things and connect the dots and try to make sense of it as I would, as a lawyer, search for the truth to achieve justice. So I thought most of my life that was Lynn Wood. I thought, well, Lynn, you're pretty good at this. But when I found God, and as I say, he found me, uh, in August of 2018, I realized that it was never me. It was always him working through me. 
And so I give him all the praise and all the glory, uh, not just for my life since I accepted him, but for my life before that. I take the blame for the bad. That's when I allowed the spirit of the Antichrist, the devil, to influence me to sin. But I love the way God works because he takes that bad that you do. He doesn't do bad. He only acts for good. But he allows you to do bad so that he can teach you a lesson. A lesson that you need to learn, I believe, to fulfill the task that he created you to perform. So I take responsibility for the bad. I ask for forgiveness. And he gave it to me. And while the devil likes to attack your past, I say have at it. My God knows everything I've done, and He's forgiven me. So the short answer was yes, and then the long answer was a more of an explanation, Stuart, to kind of the overall ways that I believe now that God was working in my life, all of my life. Amen. Well, here's the next question. This one I think you'll find uh, as a one that means a lot to you because I know you love your, your animals, your dogs. And this question says, I would like to hear more about Allie, the Motley, and crew. How old are they, and how did they come into your life? Well, I love to talk about Allie, and I obviously love to talk about the Motley, and crew. Now, let me, let me give you a little, just a short background. I, I, I wanted to retire uh, in 2019 at the end of the year. I was going to have a try a case against Elon Musk. That's another story that one day will be interesting to tell. And I had the Nicholas Salmon cases, and I was going to retire because I wanted to write. I had a lot of books in my head. And I had had about enough of 44 years at the time of putting up with the nonsense of the legal profession. Uh, I was tired of it. And I thought about one of the books that I wanted to write. It was going to be... I'd, People said, well, write about your life. Tell your life story. And I'd always say, well, I really don't want to do that. And I still got a few more chapters to write, so I don't really want to write about myself. But I had thought that I would write a book about the dogs in my life because I could go through every dog that I had, including the two dogs my parents had before I had my own dog. And I can look back at those puppies, and I could see where they had an impact on my life and taught me different lessons. And in the process of talking about each dog, I would be able to talk a little bit about my life because you'd be hearing it in terms of the lessons they taught me. The first dog that was my own was a thoroughbred beagle, Albert Barrister Wood. I called him the Big Al. We used to sing together. I'd come in from law school, and I'd howl, and he'd howl with me. And so uh, when I moved out of the place where I was living, the folks said, we're going to miss you and Albert, Big Al, singing. So I had a relationship with a beautiful young lady. Uh, it did not turn out to be marriage, but uh, we lived together at the time for seven years. And she loved dogs, but she didn't want an indoor dog. So when that relationship ended, I thought, well, this is my chance now. I can get a dog again because I've always loved dogs. I can go through and tell you about them. That's another story maybe for another day. I know their names. I know what we did together. As I said, I know what they taught me. And I decided, I was thinking, well, this is probably the last dog I ever owned, so I want to go back and get at the end what I had at the beginning. But I didn't want to get a thoroughbred dog. I wanted to get a rescue dog. 
I had one thoroughbred black lab, and I had uh, three rescue dogs uh, before Allie. So I wanted to get a beagle, a beagle mix. Uh, my daughter Chandler found an ad uh, at the Atlanta Humane Society, the picture on the Internet about this little puppy, and I, I love the face on her, and I said, well, I'm going to go over there and look, take a look at her, and I went. And, uh, i never forget, I was looking in the window, and she was all wrapped up in a blanket with her little head sticking up, turned around looking at me with the saddest eyes you can imagine. It turned out that Allie at the time was five months old, and she had been brought up the day before uh, from the Cordill, Georgia Humane Society to the Atlanta uh, Humane Society, and they had given her, they had spayed her that morning. So she'd had a traumatic couple of days. And I looked at her through that window, and I said, you're going to be my puppy. So I went in, filled out all the paperwork, and I had to go outside and figure out, you know, what am I going to name her? Because they were getting her ready and doing the paperwork. And I thought, well, I, you know, my, I had Albert, so maybe what? Maybe I'll name her Alberta and call her Berta. And I thought, well, no, wait a minute. I don't think that's the dog's name that I want. And then all of a sudden it struck me that I would call her Allie. I would name her Allie because I was a big fan of Allie McGraw. But I decided to spell it A-L-L-I-E. So when I went to get Allie, and I, I had kind of wanted a big dog that would jump up on me and lick on me and snuggle up with me while I, unfortunately at the time, was still watching fake news just to keep up with, you know, what was the truth by watching TV to learn the lies. And it turned out when I got Allie home, she was scared of the world. She had clearly been abused for her first five months. I came to believe that a woman fed her and a man beat her because she had a closer, a more willingness to go to a female and scared to death of, of men. And I had trained my other dogs, going to school with them, treats, voice commands. There was no way in the world I was going to be able to train Allie because she was not the least bit interested in treats, and she certainly wasn't going to be sternly talked to. And I thought, well... <laughs> I did. I got a. I got a uh, special needs dog here, not what I thought I wanted, but I think God gave me the dog I needed. So I trained Allie with love and patience. I made mistakes, and she made them, but we forgave each other. And I tried to introduce her to the world because all she knew was the world of dogs. And so it was a long process. But old Allie got there. She's still, she's still uh, not the dog that's going to run up and jump in your lap necessarily, but she goes with me everywhere, and she's got great instincts. Uh, I think she can get around a person and tell whether they're good or bad. And she is an incredible watchdog. The, uh, the fact is I realized early on that if I took the last two letters of her name and put them in front, I-E, it came up to I-E, all, in other words, all. So I formed a 501c3 to try to work with rescue dogs, 
and I named it Allie's Place, i.e. a place for all. As events have occurred, I haven't been able to really pursue that, although I've taken on some rescue dogs up here at Tamatley. So Allie, uh, she's kind of, well, she's half Beagle, and she's half Australian Shepherd. She ran away when I first had her, when a yard man spooked her. I didn't know she was outside, slipped through my legs and coming out the front door to check on the yard. And off she went at uh, Lake Oconee when I had a home there at the lake. And she was gone. And I thought, I, I, <laughs> I called, called for her. I walked. I got in the car. I drove around. I knew nobody would catch her because she wouldn't come to anybody for food and she wouldn't come to a stranger. And she was only at that time about six months old. And so I drove around for three hours and calling her name and trying to find her. I, I finally called my children and said, I've lost my dog. And then I pulled up in the driveway three hours after I'd started looking for her, and she was on the front porch. She was dirty, <laughs> wet. And I realized that her instincts were such that if Allie wanted to come home, she always had a plan. And so she's half Beagle and half Australian Shepherd, so... I looked at her and I said, well, you've always got a plan, and uh, you're a shepherd. So I nicknamed her my little god puppy. And then after I bought the property here in South Carolina uh, in April of 2020, one of the wonderful people that work here with me, Paula Flowers, she lo loves dogs, rescue dogs, and she had spotted some dogs that were down the road that appeared to have been lost, puppies, probably two or three months old, maybe younger. And I went down there with a couple of the people that were then my security guards. One of them's a guy that's all over me these days. But I tell you, I saw a different side of David Hancock that night. He, he stayed out there with us until 4 in the morning to get those dogs. So while people may think that I'm angry at David Hancock, I try to remember the good old, about old Hancock. He, he helped me find those dogs because they went up and, were hiding in the woods, and they were scared to death. And we rounded them up and brought them home, and uh, I decided to name them The, Motley, and Crew because I had purchased the property at Tomotley under the corporate name The uh, Tomotley Crew. And so those dogs are now, they were probably, as I said, two or three months old when we got them. And... They're pushing a little, probably I'd say a year and seven, eight months. And those dogs stay inside with Allie and me. I've tried to, over time, hopefully incorporate Hero and Rascal and Miles uh, into more of the group. But right now, they're territorial, so I have to be careful. But I love them all. They follow me everywhere I go. I sometimes have to throw them out of the house just to leave me alone. Uh, Allie's still Allie. The other dogs ended up being dogs that jump in my lap, lick my face, and <laughs> won't go away. They were the kind of the dogs I thought I wanted when I ended up getting Allie, the dog that I needed. So I love my puppies, and they bring me companionship, and they teach me things every day too. Good. Good one. Um, this one. <clears throat> well, I got in a nice plug for David Hancock, didn't I? <laughs> David Hancock, by the way, told me when he first came, that he was very close to finding Jesus Christ. And uh, I tried to help him. I talked to him a lot about things. Uh, I didn't know he was surreptitiously recording me, but this is not about David Hancock. But, I mean, there's a lot. There's good in everybody. 
Well, and I uh, think there's good in David Hancock, and I pray every night that he will find God, and and uh, then he will no longer be my enemy. He'll be my brother in Christ. So let's continue to pray for David. Amen. And I'm recording you too, by the way. <laughs> this well, is... yeah, but you're doing it wide open. <laughs> it's not surreptitious when you yeah, tell somebody. I'm just kidding. I feel bad. You know, I've recorded some people in the last uh, year. I think maybe five or six, a couple of them Daily Beast uh, reporters. I, I, I did record a conversation with Mike Flynn. I recorded a conversation with Patrick Byrne, and and I, I don't like to do it. I, I only did that. I only did it when I thought it might be needed because of what had happened to me that I might need to do it to protect myself. Mm. So. If you call me and talk to me, don't worry, I'm not recording. <laughs> unless unless you give me the reasons to think I need to to protect myself. Now, I know, uh, Lynn, that this question could be a hard one, but I think it's something that uh, will be a benefit and a blessing for others to hear. Um, Melania Bice asked this question, I know that your childhood was rocky, but what things did your parents teach you that made you the good man you are? Well, God made me the person that I am, and I give him all the praise and all the glory. My parents loved their children. My mom went to every uh, baseball game I ever played. She'd even go to every practice. It was kind of embarrassing at the time. I was like the only kid whose mother was sitting up on the hill watching me practice. Uh, my dad was... Uh, an assistant manager, and uh, he he was not a good baseball player. I, <laughs> but he could kind of keep the books and organize things, and every once in a while he'd get out and throw the ball around with us, and I'd always kind of wince like, ah, my dad doesn't really throw it right. <laughs> but he loved me, and he did it for me. My parents were, I'd say I was a, uh, Not in the lower class, but I'd say at the lower middle class. My dad uh, was a union man, and he came. Uh, we moved from North Carolina when I was three to Macon, Georgia, where he was forming unions in different places, and that didn't make him a very popular guy. Uh, he ended up selling insurance, and then he ended up doing the love of his life. He, sold, he was a used car salesman. He sold some new, new cars for a while, too, with the Pontiac dealership. And my dad could sell a car. I, I said he could sell ice to an Eskimo. My mom, she sewed all my sister's clothes. She made them. She was an incredible seamstress. And she was so active and so proud. She she drove us to school every day. Well, at the time, you know, everybody else was on the bus, and here's Lynn with his mom taking him to school and picking him up. But she did it because she cared about us, and she loved us, and she was a wonderful mother. I miss her every day. I miss my dad, too. My parents uh, were alcoholics. I guess I would say they were periodic alcoholics. They would drink, and they would uh, they'd get into some really serious domestic violence. As I got older, I was able to kind of intervene and stop it. Uh, I had an older sister that before she left to go to nursing school, she was kind of the in-between. But I watched the pattern. My parents would drink, and they'd be happy, and then as the night progressed, they'd, they'd get mean. My, my mom would, would do things to incite my dad, and all too often he would, uh, he would respond. Uh, that's not to say he didn't incite some of them, too. 
two sides to every story, to every coin. But through it all, I'd say my parents taught me how to how to love mm-hmm. through the things they did that were good. Mm-hmm. And they taught a lot to me by showing me the bad and, and my knowing that I didn't want to do that. I, Amen. I learned from the bad. When my, when my mother died, I was 16, came home from a high school party, and uh, she had been beaten to death. I found her. And uh, as I say, she went to the morgue, and I knew my dad was going to jail and going to prison. And I, I helped him. I was 16, but I knew the lawyer that they had gotten for him. I went to a coroner's inquest, and the lawyer was so bad he let my dad testify while my dad was still <laughs> under the influence. And I knew that he was not guilty of the murder charge that they had uh, arrested him on. I felt like even as a young 16-year-old, it was involuntary manslaughter. And I helped him get a lawyer. I helped him get a job. I helped him get out on bail. And then uh, five years later, he pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. And we maintained a relationship until he died at age 66. Uh, and while there were most of the times I thought that I was more of a daddy to him, uh, than he was to me. I still learned a lot about him. And when he got cancer, mm. and I knew from talking to his doctor, because I was the medical malpractice guy, and I got off to the side with the doctor, and I said, tell me, straight up, what's the deal? He said, your dad's got three to six months. Well, my dad didn't know that. And he went through the treatment, and there were times where he thought he was in quote-unquote remission. I knew he was not. And then I remember going and seeing him every other weekend when I would go down to pick up my son uh, for my visitation. I remember the day when he sat there and he looked at me and he said, Son, (laughs) this is not going to end well. I'm going to die. That's tough. But I know you learned a lot. Well, I know this. <laughs> Excuse hmm. me. <laughs> it's a tough question. It's understandable. I know that we're all going to die. Amen to that. And maybe I would like to think that we'd all realize that <laughs> hmm. a lot earlier than my dad did. Hmm. Because once you accept the fact that you are going to die, then you begin to focus on your eternal life. Amen. And the sooner you focus on your eternal life and realize that you want to go to heaven and not hell, then the better person you'll be. Because I think you'll find God, and he will make you that better person. Mm. Sorry for the emotions, but I, told, oh, I, knew, I knew it'd be a little raw. We're going we're gonna to stop here and, and uh, break this into another episode uh, tonight. I'll uh, blow my nose, and we'll crank up a second episode, try to do them in 30-minute slots, and I'll talk less and try to answer more questions on uh, episode seven. So stay tuned. God bless you all.